Welcome to Collective Conversation, the podcast that explores the intersection of social health, community, and connection for optimal mental wellness. We're your hosts, Chris. And Mackenzie. And we're thrilled to be here to just kick off our very first episode and just kind of see where this goes. Chris, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so I'm a therapist. I, I, live, I work in Nashville, live in Nashville, and I work for an agency called The Collective, and also have my own outpatient services. Um, I've lived here th- my whole life. I don't know. I go to a lot of music shows. I'm a big kid at heart. work with a lot of teens and adults, mainly through anxiety and depression, kind of more like a cognitive behavioral lens. But beyond that, I'm just a person that loves to meet people and kind of figure out how we can connect on a human-to-human level. You're a Marvel. Oh yeah, nerd. yeah, yeah. I'm a big, 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 big nerd. <laughs> big nerd. Big nerd. <laughs> what about you, Mackenzie? I am Mackenzie. I am the director of operations for the collective, and I also am one of our primary therapists and have an outpatient practice as well. Like Chris, work with a lot of teens and adults, primarily around eating disorders, disordered eating, body image concerns. Outside of work, I am also. A normal human being who likes to do things. What do I like to do? You like to go to trivia. I do. I do love a good trivia night for sure. You appreciate a good uh, nail regimen. I do. Yes, my <laughs> my nails are usually on point. Thanks, Gabby. Um, but yeah, so that's that's us. So you might be asking yourself, what is social health, and why would y'all start a podcast about it? We think of it as the glue that sort of binds us together. It's the ability to form and maintain healthy relationships, to communicate effectively, to feel a sense of belonging and connection with others. I ask myself why this is important, and I think it's because as humans, we're wired for connection. We are tribal social animals, and I think we thrive on community and support from each other. And research shows that social support is linked to better mental health outcomes, including reduced levels of anxiety, depression, and stress, and just overall well-being, mental wellness, if you will. So in each episode of The Collective Conversations, we'll be talking to experts, influencers, and really everyday people who are making a difference in the world of social health. We'll dive into topics like loneliness, building community, and the power of vulnerability, which is why we are really excited for our first guest, our fearless leader, Courtney Grimes. Hi, guys. Hi. Hello. Chris, you want to tell us, uh, give Courtney uh, an introduction here? Yeah. So Courtney is a licensed clinical social worker and trained interventionist. She maintains a passion for being on the front lines of change and currently serves as the clinical director and, as Mackenzie said, our fearless leader for the collective, as well as the nonprofit Renewed, a statewide nonprofit providing help, hope, and support for all those suffering from disordered eating. Also, she serves as Clinical Officer for Recovery Club of America, a nationwide online community to help mental health and substance abuse through connection, coaching, and therapy. She does a lot of things. She does a lot of things. There's a lot of work to be done. Courtney, throughout your storied career, you've realized that there's been a large gap in treatment services for anxiety and depression, which is what has kind of led you to start The Collective. And so we are really excited to have you here. I am so thrilled to be doing this. This is so fun. (laughs) We want to start this with a quick, like, firing off a couple, like, random questions We're going to grill you. you. We're going to grill you. All right. First off, what is your favorite food that you could eat every day for the rest of your life? Potatoes. Hands down. Like what kind of potatoes? Any kind. Fried, baked, au gratin. Not raw. I mean, I probably could handle a raw potato. Right, if you needed yeah, to. if I needed to chop. Yeah, it's fine. But like, that's probably my desert island food. Potatoes of any kind. 
they really are like a food that you can have a variety of different ways. Yeah. And you really can't mess them up. So true. So true. So that's definitely my answer. Okay. If you were to be any kind of tree, what kind of tree would you be and why? I would be a magnolia tree. Okay. Mm. There was a giant magnolia tree that grew. When I say giant, I'm talking like 112 stories. Of course, I was like six years old, but it grew outside of my grandmother's house in Atlanta. And so I remember you could make forts under there. We would play like it was just so, so cool. So giant. Lasted, I mean, decades and decades and decades and decades. And the fragrance of the blooms, it just reminds me of home, being a kiddo. I love that. I really thought I was going to stump you with that question, but <laughs> <laughs> no, I shouldn't be surprised. <laughs> Courtney, uh, what is one thing that people would be surprised to know about you? I could answer this in a myriad of ways. Surprised to know about me, I think you would be surprised to know that I'm actually a trained opera singer. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Grew up playing classical piano, started lessons when I was like three or four, and then started opera lessons at around 10 or 11. Wow. And have a degree in that. Wow. You know, Courtney, Courtney and I have known each other for what, like 10 long years? Long time. Yeah, yeah. At this point, a long time. Um, I've never heard her sing. Like, not I haven't even, either. And today, even, today is not the day. So this is not going to be an opera gonna, podcast. It is not. Okay. It is not. My opera is the opposite of social connection. <laughs> Everyone's Just like, social deflection. Hi. <laughs> That'll be our next podcast. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, you have a pretty diverse background. Right. With the opera, with singing, with everything that you've done, um, even just looking over your bio, I was like, wow, she's literally done it all. Had 12 lifetimes. Yeah. So what has called you to sort of go into social work and then like eventually therapy? Great question. So I had a career before my mental health career. I was in the music business for almost I want to say almost 12 years, maybe 11 years. And did a bunch of different stuff in the music industry like we all do. You know, um, it's very incestuous in that way. Everybody kind of hops around and you work for different record labels, publishing companies. You work with different celebrities, recording artists, studio folks. You know, you just kind of get a bit of everything. I think everybody in that world is sort of trying to find their place in that world. So you kind of get to know everybody and you cross paths with everybody a lot. And what I noticed in that world between Nashville and Los Angeles was... As often as I'm crossing paths with all of these people, I never really knew them. You don't really get close to them. And as you start to sort of wander and maybe start to get close to, like, an agenda would pop up. Does that make sense? Like, like everybody's after some. Everybody wants to see how they can sort of get something from, from other people. So I, I just noticed there was a lot of um, disconnect and noticed how sick that made me and how sick it made everybody around me. I still have some dear, dear friends who are still in the industry, what, 20-something years later. I couldn't cut it. I couldn't do it. I think I was just too, maybe not too sensitive, but I think that I needed friendship. I needed actual spiritual connection to other people. Um, And when I didn't have it for so long, I got really sick. And so after that uh, particular field sucked the soul directly out of my body, (laughs) I went back to school. And did what I honestly, I think in my heart, I've always kind of wanted to do, but never had the guts to do, um, which was to be a therapist. And there's actually a lot of crossover between the entertainment world and therapy world, believe it or not. 
So it wasn't just, you know, this giant jump over necessarily. I think there were a lot of um, common threads, but I just had it on my heart that I needed to do something with the second half of my life to help the universal disconnect that I was so privy to in the first half of my life. Yeah. If that makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah. As someone else who has done, I did two careers before I got into mental health. I was really surprised at how well that those careers prepared me for therapy. I was like, oh, I got this. This is (laughs) That's right. I can handle anything. All right. Yeah. I got to use this. That's right. In these first two ventures. Yeah. Um, So you, like your specialty is working with eating disorders primarily, or that's kind of where you got your start. Um, how did you really develop the concept for the collective? And can you tell us a little bit about the collective? Yeah, that I would love to. So I have been in the field about 12 years. I've been in private practice almost the entire time and working with folks who have process addictions like eating disorders or substance abuse problems like a chemical dependency. What you're finding essentially is things like booze or drugs or food or sex or shopping or gambling or whatever it is, right? If you get into sort of like a weird sort of abusive relationship with one of those things, typically you're using it to medicate something deeper, right? So what I was finding through working with all of these phenomenal, gorgeous, brilliant, talented people who couldn't see any of that about themselves, right? underneath the medication, we would boil it down a lot of the time to um, unprocessed trauma, uh, a lot of kind of core depression. People are really anxious, which basically just tells us that they're really, really afraid. And what I would see is folks who would come down to me in outpatient. So outpatient therapy is kind of what I call kind of regular people, regular life therapy, just kind of go once a week, once every other week. Um, is kind of a, a normal pace. Sometimes the acuity of what you're suffering with is you need a little more love. You need a little more support, right? And so some of the folks I would work with, I'd send them off to maybe a 30-day program or maybe would they would go to like a day program five days a week and come home on the weekends, things like that. And they would skyrocket. I mean, they would do so well. They would come home from these places and come back to me and one, like seeing me once a week and outpatient and they were sober. They weren't abusing food. They had gotten out of their medication of choice. They had a handle on the depressive, scared, anxious stuff they were feeling, which let's be honest, I think probably all Americans feel that to some degree. We'd get real excited about their, their process, right? Oh my gosh, I've been through this huge growth spurt. I'm really excited about my life now that I'm back. This is so great. It's going to be great. It's going to be wonderful. And then within a month, six weeks, I'm watching the majority of these incredibly beautiful, talented, brilliant people faceplant again. And they go right back to all of the same stuff. And I, we couldn't figure that out. And so over the years, I was trying to figure out the pattern. I'm like, all of these people are very different, but what's the underlying thread? right? Because we're all the same animal. We all suffer the same way. We all medicate kind of the same way. What it, what's going on here? What I realized was we were not serving, we as a field, we're not serving our clients um, deeply enough, I guess, if that makes sense. We're getting down to like the bottom mental health layer, which is a lot of times like the trauma and the depression and the fear, right? And that's where we stop. That's where we were stopping. 
And we weren't really doing a good enough job asking the question, where is that coming from? Why is everybody so sad and scared all the time? And what I put together was that we get really sad and scared when we're alone. We get really sad and really scared when we feel disconnected from everybody else or when we're trying to be healthy in a dysfunctional family, a dysfunctional work environment, a dysfunctional cafeteria full of kids that won't let you sit with them at lunch, whatever the case may be, right? So what was happening is everybody's kind of going back to these environments that made them sick in the first place and not having any idea how to manage the environment they're in or how to manage all of these amazing therapeutic tools in an environment that doesn't care about your therapeutic tools, right? So I started the collective to try to bridge that gap between folks who are in outpatient therapy or maybe somebody who really hasn't had a lot of therapy at all, right? Versus that like that kind of that walk in life versus the more intense higher acuity um, resources that people have, whether it's um, a program, whether it's a group, whether it's just something a little more supportive, a little more wraparound. There was just too big of a gap between these types of levels of care. So the collective acts uh, to bridge that gap. Um, we call it EOP, which is extensive outpatient or extended outpatient. And it's not quite the the acuity as you would need as a higher level of care, but it's more than nothing. And it's more than once a week. And the focus of the community is again that, or sorry, the focus of the collective again is that community piece, that social health and really helping folks connect to something a little bit bigger than themselves. I love that. I want to hear a little bit more about like how the collective operates, kind of the internal workings, if you don't mind. Yeah. So the collective, we structured it to be an eight-week program. It was important to us to create a start date and a finish date, right? So if you start the collective, you're going to be with a closed group of folks. So Mackenzie, say you're coming through the collective and you and Chris and me and maybe two other people are a group together. We get to start the program, go through the whole program together, and then graduate together. That allows us to become vulnerable with each other, learn how to trust each other, learn how to act out social stuff like our own stuff in a closed, safe space. Because if it shows up in this little group, if I'm pulling my normal shit with you guys, I'm doing that in real life too and can't understand why I'm not connected to anybody, right? So everybody brings their stuff naturally. They don't have to try. Naturally so into the group and then we can help very gently, lovingly, therapeutically work that out in kind of a microcosm of real life. So the groups that come through are small, no more than like eight people in them. And there's a time limit. So it's, it's too much. And after that eight weeks, you're sort of launched, right? And you have the, the education and you have the um, fortitude and you have the know-how to go really out in the world and make your own experience. So um, we have groups that meet twice a week with each other. Um, everybody receives a weekly psychotherapy session with a private psychotherapist. Um, and then they have access to a private dietitian because believe it or not, what we put in our body affects our mood. Shocking. Yeah. Uh, we have access to uh, medication management. We're very conservative with medication. Um, but we also understand that it is absolutely needed sometimes. You guys probably see this as therapists. There's a lot of shame around like, mm-hmm. oh my God, I've been in therapy so long and I can't get my act together. And oh my gosh, I know. Okay, babe, well, maybe it's a chemical thing that yeah. you yeah. can't help. You just came into the world. Just this happens to be your little 
Maybe it's more chemical balance Maybe. that's needed. So Absolutely. Make so everything a little bit more easy to kind of start to look at. You got yeah. it. And take yeah. the edge off to yeah. really be able to do some of the deeper work. So yeah, we absolutely incorporate that. Um, we have a teen track and then an adult track. The uh, kiddos have family therapy, which, you know, <laughs> they love. They all just love. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Family therapy, family coaching, things like that, parent coaching. And then for the adults, we have the massage, the ther- the therapeutic massage, which I think they actually really love that. I think they would prefer that over family therapy. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I think the teens would also prefer that. Over- yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If they exactly. were given the option. Yeah. <laughs> Bingo. Yeah. And then we have, um, we've partnered with a yoga studio in, in town. So uh, yoga's incorporated into it. It's just, it's a really beautiful wraparound, um, whole person approach to That's awesome. wellness. Which studio? Um, it is Luna Yoga and Small World Yoga are the two that we've partnered. And we love them. So shout out to both. Y'all check them out. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think it's interesting, you know, being a therapist and being like in the clinical in the clinical space often when I'm talking to people about the collective and what we do, it's so interesting to harp on the closed cohort piece, because I think if you are not involved in therapy or have not done like a group before the, having the closed cohort, like that, you know, exactly who's going to be there each time that you show up has, I mean, that's so impactful it's for a people. Huge difference. Yeah. It creates such, such a sense of safety. I think that oftentimes people aren't accustomed to in those types of spaces where you might show up one day and, you know, somebody's there, you get accustomed to them, you bond with them, and then the next day they're gone. I've calculated it working there for almost three years. At the end of the day, once the eight weeks is done, the clients have spent 24 hours just in group space in the same room together. So that's imagining going to a place and spending 24 hours with four to five people. You're going to really get to know them. Most likely, given, you know, facilitation and, and prompts and things like that to kind of go and do that deeper work. That's exactly right. And that's the goal, right, is to move these folks from, you know, total vulnerability where you walk in a room, you don't know anybody, everybody kind of sizes everybody up like, are you going to eat me? <laughs> right. And move them all the way through the curriculum driven group work to the very, very end, which is essential, essentially boundaried appropriately boundaried intimacy where mm-hmm. you really get an opportunity to experience that. I don't think we have that as Americans. I don't think we're intimate with each other anymore um, in the ways that are really good for our souls. And that's like, that's what I was seeing in the music industry all the time. There was no intimacy. It sounded transactional to me. It's very transactional, but think about how many of your relationships probably are like that. I don't know. I, I think it's, it's, and we've seen that, right? Like it's really, really effective. The efficacy of the program is through the roof. Yeah. I think, Watching people, you know, another thing that if you've done a group before, especially if you've been in a higher level of care, the number one rule is you can't be friends outside of outside of the space. But that's not something that we believe in at the collective. Like we want you to be connected with your group members, with the people that you're interacting with. Can you tell us a little bit a little bit about why that was the approach that we take? Yeah, I love that. So at higher levels of care. When your acuity is a bit higher or you have one specific, and I'm using air quotes, like issue, right, that you really need to go after, whether it's your sobriety or whether you have some trauma that you need to process, et cetera, et cetera, whatever that sort of issue is that's preventing you from really creating and cultivating the life that you want, you need to be in a super safe bubble. You need to be removed from your environment to be able to stand back up on 
on your on what I like to call kind of your baby deer legs. And they're a little shaky and they're new, but you're learning it and you're doing it and you're doing the work. And when you're in that space, you're super, super vulnerable to influence. You need to be around everybody else who's just like you, suffering with the exact same issue. You need to make sure there's no trigger words. You need to make sure that no one else there drinks either or no one else there is what fill in the blank, right? They need to mirror you back to you. So you all sort of stand up together. But that isn't real life, right? So in situations like that, a lot of the time, the acuity for the client's too high. So in the treatment bubble, you need to have that mirrored back to you. But then outside of that, it's not really appropriate simply because the acuity is too high, right? And the influence to kind of for relapse and things like that are, are too, it's too much, it's too high. So then you kind of step down a few a few stairs and you get to the collective. The collective is designed to practice what you're learning, right? So the groups that go through are mixed groups. It's all mixed um, in terms of sexuality and gender identification. It's mixed ages. It's all mixed diagnostically. Everybody's in there for all kinds of different reasons. That is the most accurate cross section of the real world that we could come up with. That's it. So you're learning how to practice all of this social stuff in in real time with people who are very, very different from you and learning how to connect with them anyway. So we promote that connection in group, but then we love it when they stay friends after group too, because then they get to take those friends forward um, down into outpatient and out into real life. So the acuity, again, the acuity diagnostically, the acuity is low enough where we can ethically promote things like social connection in and out of our groups. Whereas sometimes, you know, with the like hospitalizations or um, rehabs, places like that, it's not ethically appropriate to offer that. But that's something else that makes the collective so different, I think. I was so um, jazzed about coming on board with the collective, you know, back when we first started. But one of those reasons was like I'm in recovery myself and going through my own eating disorder work. I struggled a lot with the fact that I was the only person that I knew that had an eating disorder or was in recovery. And so I'm like doing all of this really hard work in therapy and, you know, uh, trying to recover and then would go and talk to my mom who was still dieting or would go and talk to, you know, my best friends who were trying to lose weight for the summer, you know, whatever it was, or just really inundated with, you know, toxic diet culture that exists in America but it was hard for me to want to connect with them because for me, it was like a personal affront of like, how dare you not care about mm-hmm. my recovery? Right. Exactly. And that wasn't what it was. It was just simply that like they didn't know what it was like to struggle with an eating disorder. And so that's one of the big things that I feel like we promote within our group space, especially is, hey, you're going to interact with people who frankly don't give a shit about your recovery or they may love you so much, but they don't get it. Right. And that doesn't mean that that's not a safe person for you to connect with. Absolutely. And to your point, I think that what we're doing is more important now than ever. Look at the divide in this country. Look at how quickly someone is othered and demonized if they don't agree with you, right? Like, oh, well, you you didn't vote for my person, then screw you. Or you don't understand my take on this, then obviously you're terrible. Or you're on this side of the line, I'm on this side of the line. Nope. Everything is so polarized and binary and either or. What we're doing is trying to check all of that stuff at the door with our group work and actually connect to the other humans. And we're all the same animal. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody's the same animal on the inside, no matter who you voted for, 
no matter what God you believe in, or if you even believe in God, no matter, it doesn't, it doesn't matter, right? Because all of that stuff has to, at some point, get checked. And the humanity has to be braided back into our experience with each other. We're losing it. We're losing that connection. So I think to your point, that's probably the, in my opinion, the most beautiful part of the work that we do is that you're allowed to have any opinion you want to about anything. And yes, and yes, you can. Absolutely, you can. And just because someone disagrees with you or doesn't understand you, doesn't care about your recovery, doesn't care about your what up. So it's okay. It's okay. Like one of my favorite things is like, and I say this to my clients that I work with there is like, I, I hear your story, but let's throw that away for now and let's just connect human to human. Let's talk about the common emotions that we most likely share, that fear, the curiosity, maybe the anger, whatever it is, and how do we connect to each other and just see each other for that. And then we can start to build back up and try to figure out a way to meet in the middle and maybe compromise, maybe not, but you don't have to agree, but like you cannot have a conversation with someone yelling at them across the street to try and change their opinion, change their views. You have to walk over there, meet them where they're at, and maybe they'll start to walk back with you. Hopefully. Hopefully, but that's also on them and it's not, you don't have control in that, but to just be able to have a conversation is so important and a lot of beauty can come from that. And I think, like you said, with these polarized sides, if you will, and the divisiveness, the conversation's lost. I think you're right because I think, I mean, that's so beautifully said, Chris, because I think that, you know, if you're telling me your story and I don't understand your story, or if Mackenzie's talking to me about her eating disorder recovery and I don't even know what an eating disorder, like I don't, I don't get the story, right? Mm-hmm. There, it's like, whatever, I, I, I don't, I can't relate to you at all. Like we're too different, right? But to your point, like if you dig underneath that, the story just sort of describes, you know what? Like I, I really feel scared sometimes. Or you know what? Sometimes I get so mad and I don't know where to put it. Or social justice is really important to me and that's sort of all gone out the window, especially in this state. You know what I mean? So there's something underneath that there's, that we're emoting through our story. That's the connection. The stories are so unique and so different, right? That's, that's what makes us so different from each other is the way this stuff manifests in each of our lives. But underneath that, it's these threads braided together because we all experience the same things, the same feelings. Looking at the root. You got it. Bingo. Another way to sort of frame that or another concept I think to bring in is that we work a lot with our clients, um, especially in the group, is what's the difference between safety and comfort, right? And so when I'm sitting with someone who is so different from me, it can be uncomfortable, right? And in some situations, it could be unsafe, right? But being able for yourself to know the difference is a lot of the work, right? Um, We talk about often that we always want our group space to be safe. But if it's always comfortable, we're probably doing people a disservice because it shouldn't be comfortable all the time. That's right, because that's not real life. You got to practice being uncomfortable and know that you are still safe. Yeah. It's okay. And and how to develop those boundaries and those skills within, like for our clients and themselves to be able to go into the real world and not have to have everyone tiptoe around their own stuff because everybody has their own stuff. Yeah. Right. Like if I come up, if I, you know, I start hanging out with Chris and Mackenzie and I'm like, guys, guys, these are the words you can't say around me. And these are the things we can't talk about because they're triggering to me. How does that make you guys feel around me? Right. Well, I feel like I would probably be not as authentic, not to say I'm, I'm a, person that just actively seeks out triggering people but like okay <laughs> but what can i say what can i not say you know? yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, right, right, right. And, and and i don't think it's fair i personally don't think it's fair of me to put that on you i need to learn how to handle myself and let everybody else be and say and do whatever they need to do 
and I'm still safe. It's okay. And they're not bad people. Talk about that a lot with my clients of like when you're setting boundaries or when you're sharing some things a trigger, it's like you're doing that so that other people can know to expect your response, but not to manage your response. Mm -hmm. Right? Like it's okay for you to say, Hey, that, that word brings up something. Or when you talk about this, it does, you know, X, Y, and Z to me, like that's fair. Right. Sure. And that doesn't mean that they just have to stop doing that or you can't be connected to them. That's yeah. right. And, and don't demonize them. Don't say, well, they don't love me. They don't care about me. They're self all the, no, they're just living their life. It's okay. You can still love them. They can still love you. And I would argue nine and a half times out of 10, nobody's coming after anybody. Nobody's out to hurt somebody. Everybody's just doing the best they can every day. I truly believe that. I truly, truly believe that. And operating with what we have. And you use what you got. Yeah. Yeah. One of the big things that we talk about at the collective um, and that Courtney, I know you and I have talked about a lot with other people is the pillars of health. Right. And so one of our frameworks is the idea that, you know, physical health is important. Mental health is important. And then we also have emotional, spiritual and social health. Um, and we can't just focus on one of those things. I think prior to probably the 2000s, everybody was really focused on what it meant to be physically healthy. And that was the only like indicator of a healthy person. And there's been this, you know, shift in the last couple of um, years or, you know, decade of, okay, we really need to work on emotional health because people need to be emotionally healthy. But we're dropping the ball on social health, which is right? What we've kind of been talking about at this point, up to this point, but can you tell me a little bit about how do you describe social health and from like a big picture, why does it matter so much? God, what a great question. So I grew up in a time, I was a kid of the eighties, right? So like in the eighties, social things were considered extracurricular, right? Like if I finished all my homework and I was a really good girl and I did all my chores and I didn't talk back, then I could go ride bikes with my friends. It wasn't like folded into, this is what raises a healthy, happy, stable, well-balanced adult, which is why I am the way I am. <laughs> which is why we're all therapists. Which is why I am a killer therapist. <laughs> to go where you know. <laughs> That's right. Takes one to know one. You know what I'm saying? Totally. Totally. So that being extracurricular, and I know that wasn't unique to me or my family, I mean, these are the generations that raised us. I'm watching, you know, my peers raise their children and it's, it's a little less that way, but social stuff still seems to be very like the reward, the cherry on top, um, which, which I do. I mean, I understand how, how some of that stuff can fall into that category. However, I believe that there are five main points of human growth and development, right? You've, like you said, there's physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, and social. And for the first four, I bet you can think of a place. I bet you can think of a person. I bet you have very distinct memories tied to folks who are there to help you grow with it. Right? Right? So you've got teachers or you've got pastors, you've got rabbis, you've got therapists, you've got doctors, you've got all these people in place to help promote growth in those ways. The social piece my opinion, it's not that we're not socialized. We're socialized, but there's no um, guidebook for that. There's no um, person, place, or thing to sort of like help you understand ways that you feel. As a matter of fact, social interactions, um, typically for me as a kid, and I think a lot of my friends too, it's just kind of, this is when we grew up, 
it was, you need to be happy all the time. And I didn't even know what angry was until I was probably in my mid twenties. I didn't even know what it was, which is terrifying. can't believe I didn't like burn a city down, (laughs) but I love, I love the new sort of wave of social health that seems to be like it. It's just, it's, it's just sort of like a way a small little social undercurrent right now. And I want to make it like a tsunami. I want that. I want that to come in and really hold enough gravity and have equal weight to the other, like you said, pillars of health, ways that we grow. By leaving that out, it's like the um, teepees leaning. It's like, I I almost see it like, you know, Jenga, that block game Jenga. It's like you get up to the top and it's like, oh God. And like (laughs) it falls over because the blocks at the bottom aren't stable, right? And in my humble opinion, my social health when my social health has been compromised, everything else then follows suit, right? If I'm isolated, I'm going to get pretty sad. If I feel alone all the time, I'm going to get pretty depressed and probably pretty scared. When I'm really sad and I'm really scared, my immune system's down. I don't eat well. I don't sleep. So they're my physical and emotional health. are. Do you see how like it's just sort of that the domino effect. The domino effect. And I don't think that we give enough gravity to social to social health, not socialization. That's different, right? But social health and really understanding social dynamics and social wellness. Um, and have that sort of like an equal pillar to all the others. What would you say is the difference between socialization and social health? Socialization is like, uh, you know, I was in Girl Scouts, um, I went to public school, I was on the swim team. So you're like around other people, you're not, you know. You know how to make eye contact, you know, appropriate brunch talk, blah, 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 blah. It's how to navigate our world socially, right? How to go to a job, um, being socialized or being around other people doesn't really mean you're with other people. Is that, is that a good yeah, way to say that? that? Like, have you ever been in a room full of people and you feel like you're all alone in it? Oh, yeah, totally. That's the difference. It's like you're socializing, you're being socialized, but you're, but you're not connecting to them. So I think that's the difference for me. One of the things, you know, some collective history, which was we opened our doors January 2021. (laughs) And so Courtney- 2020. Or 2020. Yeah, yeah, excuse me, January 2020. And so, you know, here we are, a brand new uh, treatment center trying to like make this big social change. And then two months into it, the entire world shuts down. However, like I, I firmly believe uh, you, my gray hairs may disagree, but I think that that was a really pivotal point for us to be around. And so I'm curious for you, like, tell us a little bit about the pandemic and lockdown and what that has meant for people and their social health. Oh, my God. You guys remember that? Unfortunately. Do you remember yeah. that? Oh, yes. Yeah. And that one time? All the <laughs> All the Zoom like things uh, we were trying like let's play Zoom <laughs> trivia let's watch a movie oh, let's go with people I'd be oh, like please no my, yeah my twitching still hasn't stopped <laughs> dude we opened up in January of 2020 and literally it was like what six weeks later yeah it, like and then my father who's one of our attorneys is like shut it down <laughs> take a loss fire everybody get rid of that building I'm like no dad no so I think what the pandemic actually did was put a global spotlight on our mission statement that was already in place, it became easier to sell it. It became easier to get people hooked into what it was we were doing because all of a sudden they were all forced to experience it and recognize it. Um, So in this weird, very twisted way, 
what a gift. Right. What a gift. I mean, thank God for Zoom. <laughs> right. <laughs> I bet also Zoom thanks God for the pandemic. Yeah, exactly, because I, exactly. I had never heard of that until <laughs> literally I was like, what's that? What is that? What is Zoom? <laughs> yeah, totally. Totally, totally. But I mean, it was it was such a gift and coming out of that lockdown, out of the pandemic. Have you guys found that even on the flip side of that, you don't even have to describe our mission statement as much as you did yeah. before it, week yes. before that? Now everyone goes, oh, so, oh I get it. Totally yeah. get it. You know yeah. what I mean? Because yes. we all went through it together. So um, in a weird way, it, it again, just kind of put this giant global spotlight on what it was we were already trying to do. Huge collective trauma we went through. And then still going did there. through too. <laughs> and still yeah. going through. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I've seen the repercussions. You're not still wrong. Seeing the repercussions. You're not wrong. It lasts forever, doesn't it? At least a couple of generations. Probably. Especially, I mean, we so we work with with teenagers 13 and up, but I think we're seeing like the teenagers that were that like 12, 11, 12, 13 during the pandemic are now in high school and watching them miss out on school in a very pivotal, like that sixth, seventh and eighth, the middle school years. And I love them, but they're little weirdos because they have missed out on some like socialization and like connection. Super important years. Yeah. And so even see, I think that we'll continue to see that um, sort of ripple effect, especially with our younger younger clients. I think you're exactly right. I think you're exactly right. And I I don't know if you guys are seeing this in your private practices also, but I have seen this um, delineation between folks coming out of the pandemic. Like on one hand, I've got people who are like, I I don't want to go outside. I I don't, I can't go to the grocery store anymore. Like I'm so, like they got so used to and accustomed to being alone that like the idea of being around other people, nope, hard pass, right? So that's their work to do. Then I've got the other side of that coin where people come full, like me, come flying <laughs> out of those gates with like all the colors and whistles and bells and like, I want to be around people all the time and going way too far the other way, which I don't, I mean, you guys know me, I take most things way too far. <laughs> so learning how to get that balance back has been really hard for every human almost. Like it's been hard for me, but I'm, I think we all have our own work to do after something like that. And it was really hard. I don't know if y'all felt this or if there's any therapist listening who felt this, but for me, the work that I was doing with my clients during the pandemic and walking with them through everything they were going through, I'm like, homie, me too. And I'm going through the same trauma you're going through. And I'm talking about it all day, every day with all these different people. And it's hard to sort of like put yourself aside dude, and meet them where they're at. Right. God bless. Cause I'm sitting here like, I don't have any of these answers. I thought you did. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I have no idea what to do. We're all just winging it. Literally. I have not taken these pajamas off in four days. Unprecedented. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Well, with that in mind, other than obviously coming through the collective programming, which we want everyone to do. What are some tips for developing better social health? Ooh, I love that. I think knowing yourself, knowing yourself well enough that in real time, you can name stuff like I feel alone. I feel lonely. And y'all, please don't forget, those are two different things. Feeling lonely and feeling alone are two different things. And sometimes you feel both at the same time and sometimes it's one or the other. But know yourself and know your sort of emotional little clock in there well enough to be able to name what's going on. And the second piece of that that I would definitely recommend is once you kind of put your thumb on what it is that you need, make sure you're meeting that need in adaptive ways. 
and not maladaptive ways, right? So like if you feel really, really lonely, you know, as tempting as it is to hole up in your room with a box of wine, that's probably not going to pan out the way you want it to, right? Um, Figure out how to seek connection. Um, Sometimes that just starts with socialization, right? Sometimes it's a beautiful launching point. Don't stop there. Don't stop there. Um, See if you can recognize a lack of connection in yourself. Sometimes people find that connection to a higher power. Sometimes they find it um, online. Sometimes they find it with friends, a family member. Um, I have found that with pets. But look to connect to other living things um, in some way because I think that's so, so, so important. And it just reminds me that I'm, I'm such a small little cog in such a giant, giant universe. And that makes me feel relieved to realize how small I am and I'm actually a part of something so much bigger and um, it's been around so much longer than I'll be here, yeah. you know, but I just kind of get to show up and, and love my hardest while I'm here before I'm gone. And it takes the pressure off of me to kind of remember that, that we're all just kind of doing our best. And um, I think if we can name kind of some stuff that we feel on the inside and know how to really, really get that met, which at the end of the day, I know this kind of sounds camp counselor-y, but <laughs> I used to be a camp counselor. Surprise, surprise. Um, I think we just want to love other people and know that they love us back. That's it. I think that's all we're kind of here to do. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, that's it. No, I just have a lot of feelings because what you were describing was like the opposite of existential, existential dread, like existential hope. Yes. You yeah. Know, like, oh, you should coin that. Yeah. Patent that. I don't know. I've just never thought of existentialism <laughs> as like something that can be used as a force for like, because like if I think about being such a small piece in this huge world, I'm like, that is a lot of opportunity for me to be a lot of different things and it can be overwhelming, but somehow you're, you're able to look at it. God, in a different I love way. it. You know, all right, you know that feeling when like you're laying in a field and it's really, really dark and you can see every single star. Yeah. It's that feeling like when you're standing next to like a giant ocean or mm-hmm. up on a cliff mm-hmm. and you're looking down and you're like, Oh my God. Like I experienced it in Israel a lot. Like looking at yeah. this, at this stuff that's like thousands and that and I'm like, he gives a shit about like me. Like, <laughs> right. Yeah. My life is just like, that like it it doesn't matter right and I'm like oh okay like I'm not nearly as important as I think I am like <laughs> no it's fine you it know takes some pressure it, off it does it's like cool let's just chill out and have it's a good time yeah I well I'm be dead soon let's have some fun you know <laughs> whatever I think that's like even just thinking of of that piece like it's so to me like really easy to see it from both ways mm-hmm. right I was laying yesterday getting ready for um yoga and our my teacher was walking us through like relaxing she's like and if you're having a difficult time relaxing just remember we're flying through space on a rock <laughs> yeah and i'm like oh um, yeah is that supposed to make me feel relaxed <laughs> now i'm terrified right <laughs> yeah. but i think it put into perspective too of like yeah that's like for me to exist in the life that i have has to be like a one in like an unfathomable number literally like chance right Right. and so it's it's yes and right like yes none of this matters and also all of it matters right like that I am like get to exist in this space too and how cool and that's why I have such a hard time with fear fear is such a lie like everyone's like I'm afraid of this I'm afraid of that I'm like why yeah we're all like this generation's going to be gone before you know it no one's going to remember any of us yeah like just do it go for you know like yeah I look at fear as like an adventure. Like yeah, exactly. when you go on a vacation, at least for me, I if I don't plan it out, I'm just like, I'm going to a new place. I don't know what's going to happen. What's the difference between that and fear? Well, because I'm wanting to do it. And I kind of look at it's like cheesy. Like if we look at 
Fear is F-E-A-R, spelled out, feeling excited and ready. I don't know what the future holds, but I'm excited for like what it's going to bring. And I can be fearful of it or I can just embrace it. That's right. That's right. Because no matter what comes your way, it's all in how you spin it. Yeah. It's all in how you choose to use it. Until there's evidence supporting that maybe this is a dangerous situation that I should have fear in. Right. But the unknown is just as scary. And And I think to your point, the assumptions are our stories, right? Mm-hmm. I would argue probably 99% of fear is we're afraid of what we're telling ourselves in our head. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. That's the only thing that's happening out here. I tell all my clients that. I'm like, okay, if you really want to get out of your head and you want to be well, you need to get ready because it's real boring out here. <laughs> you're like, I would yeah. love that. I would love that. I would love yeah. that. And then we get them there and they're like, this sucks. What do people think about all day? Right? And you're like, Whatever you Wait. want. You get to pick now. <laughs> yes. Like, I'm so bored. I'm like, right. It's just like Tuesday. Like, whatever. It's, right? Nothing's just, happening. Yes. Yeah. It's real boring out here. I always like to tell my clients that fear and excitement light up the same area of your brain. So it's just in how you frame it for it's yourself. It's how you spin right? it. Yeah, That's absolutely. So if That's you're it. finding yourself afraid of something, instead say, I'm excited about this thing. And see, like, if it changes for you. Yeah, that's yeah. so true. That's so true. I remember when I was a kid, I would get really, really nervous before I had to, like, go on stage for something. And I was talking to my dad about it once. And he goes, well, it's good that you're nervous. And I said, well, why is that? And he goes, it means you care. You care about it. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, that's such a good, like, you know, mm-hmm. it's all in mm-hmm. how you, it's the story you tell yourself. Yep. Yeah. That's it. Courtney, thank you so much for thank being you here so, with so us much. today. Um, any final thoughts or uh, anything you would like to share with us before we go? Whoever's listening, I just would really encourage you guys to um, take a look. Don't be scared. Take a look at um, what you tell yourself, maybe why you tell yourself the things that you do, how much of that is or could be attributed to loneliness. If you feel lonely, if you feel like you're alone, the story that you tell yourself could be, I'm alone because nobody likes me. Or I'm alone because I'm a failure or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? So I, I would really encourage everybody to be real, real mindful of that narrative. Be so careful about what you tell yourself because your brain's going to believe whatever you tell it. So be mindful of that and reach out. Um, we are always here. This is what we do. This is, this is why I was put on earth. Um, and as long as I am breathing air in my lungs, I will be available to help whoever, whenever. I can, but reach out to somebody in your world, somebody in your life. And I guess what I want to leave everybody with is please remember you are absolutely not alone. If you think something, if you feel something, um, I can guarantee you it's, um, it's part of this epidemic. Uh, you're not weird. Nothing's wrong with you. Uh, let's just talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks so much for sharing that. Uh, thanks Thank for you having so much. Me. Thank you for Love joining you guys. Us. Thanks yeah. for having me. Yeah, so that uh, you are our inaugural guest on our first episode. Of hopefully many. Of hopefully many. Um, But this was, I think, a great sampling of what's to come. Um, And so everyone listening, I want to thank you for for joining us during our first episode. If you want more information about us, you can check out our website, which is mycollectivecare.com. If you want to send us an email, you can send us an email to hello at mycollectivecare.com or you can find us on Instagram at also at mycollectivecare. And um, yeah, our phone number, which is 615-208-3397. And somebody will be available to to help you. So we look forward to connecting um, and seeing you again real soon. Till next time, this has been Collective Conversations with Chris and Mackenzie.